Welcome to this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Fran Polaro, Senior Editor of Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine, covering the sales and marketing vertical, and your podcast host. The Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. I'm here today with Pratap Kedkar, who is the CEO of ZS. ZS is a management consulting and technology firm focused on transforming global healthcare. And Pratap is a frequent contributor and source to Farm Exec, who was recommended to me by a former associate, and I'm very happy that he did so. Pratap has the ability to condense and distill an abundant amount of wonderful information into a small amount of time, so I couldn't wait to have him on the pod. Pratap, no pressure. How are you today? I'm doing well, Fran. How are you? I'm great. All right, let's get started. So we all know that during the pandemic, the way sales teams interacted with HCPs changed dramatically. And we were all waiting to see what would happen once things started getting back to normal. And I'll put normal in quotes. Where are we now and what do you see happening in 23? Yeah, great question. So everybody was waiting breath that once things get back to quote normal, we will just jump back to the way things were in 2019. Not happening. So I think what we are seeing so far, I mean, to put it very sort of simplistically and bluntly is the model used to be a reach and frequency model, as you know, in terms of promotion to physicians. Reach is showing some signs of life. So reach is crawling back up to about 80, 85%. We track this almost on a monthly basis with the data that we get from pretty much most of the pharma companies we work with. Reach is showing signs of life. Frequency is not. Frequency is staying dead. Mm-hmm. So that's the headline. What do I mean by that? I mean, before COVID, If you were a high value physician, a specialty physician, let's say, it was not uncommon for people to plan, you know, that a rep would be there every two weeks, sometimes more. But this idea that the reps can go in there every week or every two weeks or every three weeks, I think that's history because given where we went through with COVID, where of course frequency was pretty much dead for a long time, that Mm -hmm. is the part that's not coming back. We've been tracking this and the idea that I can go back and talk to you six times well, maybe over a year and you know a few months, you are not going to be able to talk to me six times in two months. Yeah. So this idea that the repetition of the message, which was a very key element of the model, that's the part that's not coming back. And so we have to find a way to counter that, meaning not try to get in a hundred times some other way necessarily, but what do we do to maximize the time that we do have with the physician? That is the problem for 2023. Yeah, so it's that sounds like it's it's going to be a pivot to something hybrid, right? Like more digital. Where where do we go from here? Essentially, three directions are opening up. One, yes, there is always some room for face to face, and some of these reps are of course going back. They're trying their best, by the way, to go back to that world that they knew, mm-hmm. um, and that's why reach is recovering because they can get probably one or two calls a year for sure. Second is what I would call virtual, meaning it is the rep, but they're not talking to you face-to-face, they're talking to you over Zoom, let's say, or some sort of tele-channel. The third is digital. And when I say digital, I mean all the other channels that we've been used to hearing about the last few years, whether it's push emails, pull websites, third party, all of that together. So basically what we are seeing is a mixture of multiple channels and multiple modalities trying to make back up this idea of the frequency that was lost. But I think rather than looking at it as what else can I do to scramble 
so that I can get back to the count of visits I used to have. The new problem should be, how can I use all these channels in a way that is actually more effective, not right. less effective or just compensating in terms of quantity, more effective in terms of quality going forward. And so what we are seeing is a few phenomena. One, the hybrid rep, this idea that the rep can actually be on all of them. They can be the person who sends the email, they can be the person on Zoom, they can be the person face-to-face. And even if they're not directly involved, they are the people who can direct or orchestrate the customer experience. That is a different skill, by the way. It is a customer skill. It is not service of the product skill. And I think that is the change that pharma has intellectually acknowledged, but they haven't made the leap to say, this means that the rep actually has to behave and have different skills very differently. The second is, here's an opportunity to be much more effective. A human being, the rep, could maybe handle two or three different messages to all their audience. But now that you have electronic means, digital means, you can actually think about 30 messages, not three, or in fact, 300 messages, if you really want to. So this idea of content hyper-personalization becomes really, really important, meaning let's not worry about the bandwidth of what my channel can deliver. Let's worry about the variation in preferences my customer wants, and my channel can morph whichever way they need to to meet that need. So that's, I think this is fairly cutting edge. The hybrid rep people have tried. About 50% of companies have upskilled, but not all the way. I think hyper-personalization of content is something maybe two, three companies are trying. So it's very much sort of the cutting edge, but it is made possible. And it happens all the time in other industries. So in terms of infrastructure, in terms of technology, in terms of data, it's there. In terms of culture, in terms of mindset, in terms of skills, it is not quite there. And of course, you have to change the process too, because my legal can't take three months to approve a message if I'm going to have 300 of them. So those are some of the pivots the industry is going through. I expect good progress on that front in 2023. And then there's a couple of other things we can also talk about, which is how pharma should approach sort of the broader go-to-market idea using digital in some other ways. But let me pause here and see if there are any thoughts that occur to you that you'd like to get into more. That sounds great. You know, as as consumers, we know relevant messaging is everything, or we just don't even look at it. So, you know, that makes a whole lot of sense. And it seems like pharma's kind of a little bit behind other industries in, in that way, but they'll catch up. What about modular content and modular approval in that, you know, you said there was a lot of messages that were being sent out. So how are we going to get approval more quickly? Yeah, exactly. So I think the the old idea was, you know, if you have four segments and you have four or five messages, well, you'll go through about a three to four month period with MLR, with medical, legal and regulatory to get those messages approved. Painful, but you can do it once. If you're going to do it every three, four years, that works. This idea that I need 300 messages because I've got micro segments of a few people or even of one person. I mean, let's say I have a big brand, right? Several billion dollars. I'm going to some specialist, maybe I have 10,000 targets, typically in oncology or dermatology, 10,000 targets. Sure, I can I can deal with 200 messages because like you said, we are all used to being on Amazon and Amazon doesn't use people to send us the messages. Technology can do it. Now, instead of the MLR process approving a few messages, they have to get into this Lego mindset, right? That each message is composed of a few modules like Lego bricks. And if as a legal department, I can approve the yellow brick and the red brick and the green brick in these four or five different shapes, and I can approve, you know, here are five sanctioned ways of putting bricks together. Well, 
you can create a lot of different shapes with those modules doing customization where I then don't need to sit and approve the full final toy that you make out of those Lego bricks. So this idea of containing modularizing and allowing a process to take care of what was basically a human legal committee decision, I think this, this is a difficult change. Don't get me wrong. I'm not used to this. They haven't done this in 40 years, but other industries do it routinely. And that is the change that I think we need to look forward to over the next 24 months. Interesting. And I like the Lego analogy. So where are we with social media and social for HCPs? So social is obviously evolving quite rapidly. I think the the key in social right from day one and, and for the last few years, regardless of COVID, has been credibility and neutrality. Meaning that unlike push, where it's about, you know, customized emails, modularized content, my own website, on social, it's free. Yeah, you can advertise a little bit. But the reason they will come to that social website and consume the content is basically pull based on their preference. So they will prefer credibility like WebMD or UpToDate.com. They will prefer neutrality and balance. They want to go to a watering hole that other people also come to because that's where they get the value. They get the value in terms of their peers coming to that website too. And of course, they want a balanced view, which they're not going to get from that drugs website. It's also convenience because there are 400 branded drugs. And if I'm a physician, I can't remember all these different places to go to. I will go to social because there are some common places where I can get the choice discussion. And so I think these are the reasons people go there. And so the focus in pharma should be shifting to, yeah, you can do some advertising there, sure, you can put out some paid content. But what is that customer's preference? What type of pool media do they go to? When do they go to? And so this gets us back to that pharma model. I mean, it's it's the old adage, right? Right customer, right message, right channel, and right time. And I think social fits in there because there is a particular type of message or content, this unbiased, neutral balanced thing that the physician is looking for and he goes to a particular channel he or she goes to a particular channel to get that well who's looking for that what kind of sites do they particularly like is there a way we can help in participating giving them that balanced message it can't be something just we send but we can position our promotion our partnership with the website appropriately so this idea of really understanding the pull behavior not just the push behavior is new it's important and it governs everything, including social, but of course, other websites such as WebMD and so on as well. Yeah, sounds super important. I'm going to pivot a little bit here and go to a little piece of legislation that was passed recently with a nice branded name, the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's talk about that a little bit. What does that mean for the industry now and going forward you know, into 2023 and beyond? Yeah, I think it was the opening of a door in a fairly... <laughs> I will say complicated direction for the industry. I think it it yeah. did go to show, as people have commented in the media, that pharma's influence and arguments are not getting as much traction in DC as they once did. So what are the things in the IRA? Well, the three things we do know, which are very clear in terms of the parameters. One is drug prices have to keep up with inflation or below. Can't go higher than that. Okay. That's fairly clear. That kicks in actually immediately, kicks in next year. So that's going to be felt and it's going to be felt pretty immediately. Second, which is actually a good thing for pharma, which is that we have, the the legislation has capped out-of-pocket costs for patients, $2,000. Okay, that's actually really good because this means that 
one of the things that was preventing specialty medications from getting to the people who need them is that they used to not be able to afford it because many of these, the insurers, the payers had percentage copays. So it wasn't a dollar copay. It was like 20% of the drug you have to pay. Well, mm -hmm. depending on oncology, immunology, some expensive drugs, that can be a big number. But having a $2,000 cap made it a little bit more predictable and manageable. So that's a plus. The third piece, of course, is the one that everybody's talking about, which is lowering the prices through drug negotiation. And this is the part where the federal government gets to decide in a few years, not all drugs, starting with 10 drugs, which ones to negotiate with. So let's talk a little bit about the implication. So that's what was in it. We did some analysis at ZS in terms of sort of rough ballpark, okay? If you have a small molecule drug, let's say 4 billion-ish, you know, just to pick a, a largish <laughs> drug that's a small molecule, mm -hmm. that sort of drug, 3 to 5 billion range, is going to see an impact of revenue about 45 to 60%. That's big. 45 to 60% cumulative revenue erosion over its lifetime, which of course means that people are going to shy away from investing in small molecules. Now, small molecules, overall, the era was coming to an end anyway, but there is a lot of promise in some small molecules that are under development for things like Alzheimer's, for instance, sometimes, or some of the other areas where things have been quite successful, even in the specialty space with small molecules. Anyway, so small molecules will suffer a lot. Large molecules, biologics, again, for something that's a fairly large blockbuster, let's say 5 billion plus, we are talking about a 15 to 20% revenue erosion. So we're talking, you know, pretty substantial changes, more so in a percentage sense for small than large. But that's just to give you a sense of, so how much does it matter to the pharma industry? Clearly, it matters a lot because most of the pipeline that we're looking at all the way to 2030, either from large pharma or emerging pharma, is this large molecule thing. And it will start kicking in after year 13, typically. So that's the, the sense of what is this thing and why does it matter? Let me pivot to not what is known, but what is unknown. So what are some of the things that are going to be very interesting and they haven't played out yet? And so that's what we are watching very carefully for 2023. One, there is going to be negotiation, but nothing in the legislation about really how will this negotiation work? There's a price that sort of roughly set saying, well, this is the maximum price the secretary is allowed to pay or they can accept. But well, how much lower from that will you go? Will there be a push to go lower? How will that price be determined? So on and so forth. So there are a lot of unknowns around the actual detailed rulemaking around the process of negotiation, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. That rulemaking process, pharma needs to be at the table to make sure they can participate in a way that makes sense. That's one big unknown. The second one is, hey, you know, the legislation was trying initially to have this also apply to the commercial business, not just what CMS pays for. Well, the commercial bit got left out because, of course, government policy should be about government paid stuff. But every time the government comes up with something, there is spillover on the commercial side. So it's not clear what the payers will do. The second problem is, hey, in this particular category, there are three drugs. One is passed. It's 13 years. So it's subject to heavy price negotiation. Its competitor is in year seven. That is not subject to negotiation. So now you have this really weird, uneven playing field where two drugs are competing. One of them gets hammered by HHS. The other one is left untouched. That sounds really weird that the government would favor one player, but not another 
in a competing drug class, right? Normally, government should be about making policy about the whole class, but that's not the way this works. It's singling out a few drugs. And so you could have this weird situation where the new drug <laughs> gets an advantage and perhaps it has a higher price, but it's not hit that 13-year limit yet. And so it is not subject to negotiation. So it may, or, it may have some sort of unintended consequences. So we are kind of watching these dynamics carefully because the pairs will have something to think about and say here as well, including on the commercial side. And then the last big one is, look, this didn't really solve the big patient affordability problem. We, we did some studies on patient drug affordability. Most of the affordability problems are not solved by this legislation. Maybe this legislation focuses on like 10% of the problem. Remember, 88% of the pills in this country are already generic. So there's a lot of issues on the generic side, which of course this did not address. And so I think this idea that suddenly everything will become affordable for patients as far as drugs are concerned because of the IRA, that is not true as well. And so we do expect some further ongoing evolution in this space. And that will be also a thing to watch to see, does the government actually train its sites on some of the other parts of the problem where some attention is needed and solve for that? So those are some of the things to watch for. Wow. Sounds like it's going to need some edits going into the future. Yes. <laughs> All right. So some might say that this isn't exactly a commercial topic, but I certainly think it is. Can you talk to us about patient centricity and how pharma really needs to be connecting with their patients more and why? So this is being approached from two directions. One is the philosophical sort of almost moral dimension, which is the patient is the end customer. And I think all pharma companies know this. They are patient focused. But is that the right thing to do or should I be patient centric? What's the difference between focusing on the patient and centering on the patient? So there's this sort of one piece that's coming in. Part of that is tied to things like health equity. You know, it's just the right thing to do. But it, of course, focuses on some specific patient subpopulations. The other part is, okay, I want to be patient-centric. How exactly do I do that? What does that actually mean day to day? What does it change on the ground? So I think this pharma has struggled with a lot. I think what people are now gravitating to in terms of the industry is, let's not worry about are we patient-centric? What do we want to call ourselves? Let's really focus on helping the patient. What made that change happen on the ground was in large part some of the digital changes that are taking place in pharma. We already talked about digital for HCPs, all that content stuff, omni-channel, orchestrated you know, engagement and all that. But if I look at total digital spend in pharma, about all the money, so to speak, about two-thirds is going into customer-facing digital. Okay, just to break it out, about 30% is going towards digitizing the world of interacting with the physician, which we already talked about. That includes content and all that other good stuff. And about 20%, so not too far behind, 20% of all the digital investment is going to fix and improve the end-to-end -end patient experience, which gets us to this question. Because what is happening now is to say, let's look at the whole patient funnel. Patients get diagnosed to patients actually improve at the other end of the funnel. Now, if I look at all of this, pharma is realizing that that second half of the funnel, right? They were all focused with sales and marketing all the rep stuff we talked about on the first half of the funnel. Let's do marketing, let's do sales, let's get the patient on the script. Excellent. But what happens is once they're on your script, 30 to 50% of them fall off. 30 to 50% of the revenue goes away. And it's not just the revenue going away, the patient doesn't get the outcome because of course they stay on it for a month or two. 
and then they fall off for all kinds of reasons or they never start. And so this idea that getting the patient associated with the script through the doctor is not the end of the problem. It is actually the beginning of the problem. In fact, it's the beginning of the journey and the opportunity for the patient. I think that mind shift is what I'm calling patient-centered investment. Now, whether or not you do it out of a philosophy of patient centricity, the important thing is you are investing meaningfully on the ground to help the patient from the moment they get on their medication, which is the only moment that really matters to them. All the stuff you did before that, they don't see it, they don't feel it, doesn't matter to their health. But after they are written the medication, do they start on it? Do they stay on it? Do they see the outcome? Do they fall off because there's a side effect? Do they fall off because there's an affordability challenge or because their employer changed or whatnot? How do we stay through them with this journey? And it's a chronic journey. It's not an acute medication most of the time. 75% of the spend in this country is on chronic disease. And so that is where the focus needs to be. So that's where, for instance, digital is helping to say, can I stay in touch with the patient? How can I engage them? This is not commercial or marketing in the traditional sense of the word, as you said, Fran. But the idea being, can I use data? Can I talk to them? Can I get that text, that speech to figure out what is their issue? Can I intervene quickly? All of that digital AI data is beginning to revolutionize. We are creating new patient services. So this focus on really making sure that your end customer actually gets the benefit of the product you've created all the way, I think this is going to be huge. A, it helps the pharma company because obviously you don't get that 50% revenue leakage. More importantly, it helps the patient. And by the way, here's a big benefit. If the patient actually improves, both in terms of experience and outcome, you can take that evidence back to the payer and say, hey, remember the IRA? You wanted to negotiate price with me, but my product is really good. Here's the evidence finally. And I'm actually intervening to make sure my product ends up working better than it did in the past. I'm intervening to make sure my product fits the patient with the right circumstances and not just indiscriminately, which is one of the things you're considering, you know, you were worried about. I'm intervening to make sure that my knowledge of the patient is put to good use because if they get better, they'll be happy with their healthcare, which of course translates to loyalty with the employer healthcare plan. So it sort of has this halo effect as well. Again, early days, but I would say that maybe about 20% of the pharma companies have really embraced this journey. This journey works, by the way, not just in the US with the plentiful data, it really does also work with some modifications globally. So I think this is a very exciting area and potentially one of the bigger implications of going digital in the pharma world uh, over the long term. I think in the short term, yes, the HCP stuff is happening faster. I would say about 60% 60, 60 of the companies have moved along that spectrum on digital for HCP, only about 20 for uh, digital for patient. But to me, long term, that is where the bigger value will be. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Outcomes and adherence to get to these good outcomes is incredibly important, especially with the patient voice these days. Yeah. You, know, you have people, you, you, these, these large pharma companies are now, you know, like Pfizer and Moderna, they became badge brands. So it's really important that um, they, they think this all the way through down to the patient because the patients, you know, they make noise on social media. There's important social listening that can happen from those patients. So getting to the end is super important. They can't ignore that anymore. I agree completely. And not just that. I mean, look at all your, your other healthcare stakeholders, the providers, right? The number one priority for providers right now is the healthcare worker shortage. 
yeah whether it's nurses and any kind of healthcare staff it's amazing like a, a nurse essentially has doubled in cost and so this idea that pharma can say oh yeah this thing needs to be infused the product is written oh where will they go because of covid the facility was closed after covid there isn't enough staff you have to help the patient along the journey otherwise a as you said they will go to social media but broadly i mean this is why you created the medication and for whatever reason if they can't get it yes it's not the medication's fault but it's not the patient's fault either we need the benefit so it's i think in everybody's interest to make this work and the other thing that pharma is learning through this patient centric approach is that because they are only 15 20% of the overall cost they have to coordinate with the other 80% because the payers the providers the nurses the physicians everybody has a say and you can't just say well i own the patient because they all own the patient too and in fact the patient owns the patient more than anyone else and so how can you coordinate with all the other stakeholders to benefit the patient this is hard this is strange bedfellows but again <laughs> this is the kind of thing that you will have to figure out if you want to help the patient long term especially as your medicines get more expensive more complicated and and you know all the previous pressures that we talked about exist so this shift in philosophy is actually also going to have an impact on how you think about the commercial model to begin with because the hcp is no longer the main decision maker the institutional the provider the payer the hospital becomes that and so you have to incorporate that into your thinking and focusing on the patient is the only way this will resonate with them because otherwise it becomes a adversarial relationship makes a lot of sense and i like that direction okay so let's get a little altitude here and we'll talk about what happens in 2023 i've heard about some potential pipeline issues for large pharma how will that affect them as well as emerging biopharma development and commercialization i was talking to an executive and we were talking about patent cliffs and you know sometimes pharma shrugs it off and says yeah we've seen this so patent cliffs the small molecules had two major patent cliffs in the last decade i think in the 2000s actually and we weathered it just fine i think what's coming up is the large molecule patent ramp down i won't call it a cliff because there's no one particular year or two where everything sort of goes away like the small molecules i think 30 billion disappeared in one year here what's happening though is that there's going to be a series of large molecule patent expiries starting about now going till the end of about 2030 a big one coming up is you know umira going off patent early next year but later in the decade we have you know optivo kitruda some of these really really big amazing successful blockbusters large molecules oncology immunology going away so what this has done for large pharma is it's going to create some significant pipeline holes in fact for some companies some of these products that are going away might represent 50% 70% in one case of their current uh, 2021 sales and so of course that is a pipeline challenge now typically what pharma does this is not a new reality for pharma drugs always go away is to replenish them with phase 2 phase 3 drugs they have in their pipeline and pharma does have a bunch of them but it's not going to be enough to replace all of this loss just to give you a sense about half the revenue of pharma will go away in pieces over the next over the rest of this decade and only about half of that gets replaced back with what's in their current pipeline mm. okay so where did the remaining quarter come from that's where i think the promise has been emerging pharma and the emerging pharma promise is that there are hundreds if not thousands actually we we did a count we follow them there's about 4 to 5000 emerging pharma firms 
So this is the contrast you have. You have about 30, 40 majors, half their pipeline revenue is going away. They need a way to fill a pretty big hole. They're going to turn to these 5,000. The 5,000, lots of variation there in terms of maturity and possibility. But like you said, they were all dependent on a lot of funding from the VCPE world. A lot of that funding really dipped. The valuations really dipped last year, early this year, as a result of macroeconomic conditions and other things. And so right now, the challenge is that about 60-65% of the new pipeline is sitting with the small companies, with the emerging pharma companies, not with large pharma. And so basically, over the next few years, is this big exchange of value coming, which is which of the emerging pharma survive because of the funding crunch, which of them actually succeed in getting to a decent phase two, phase three situation and show promise. And then pharma has to look at this, big pharma has to look at these thousands of possibilities and do a very careful job of winnowing out the pieces that they will need because their own pipelines are not strong enough on their own to fulfill that hole. So that's the dynamic that's playing out. I suspect 2023 valuations will probably still stay relatively depressed. I'm sure they'll begin to pick up. But the new capability that I want to stress that big pharma will need to get is the ability to evaluate from these thousands of possibilities which ones are the ones to pick, right? It's like picking uh, picking pets in a way, but you do have to have the experience to make sure you're picking the right opportunity. And it's probabilities. It used to be based on experience. Of course, people use statistics. Now, increasingly, there's AI and machine learning and digital again coming in to say, well, maybe I can help quantify the chances. It's still a probability. Nothing is a certainty. But that sort of capability is another place where digital is beginning to have an effect in terms of portfolio strategy, business development, licensing, all of that good stuff. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's great. That's that's perfect. And so that's a good way to wrap it up because we started with digital and um, we seem to have ended with digital and technology. So. Digital is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ready to roll in, in the pharma industry. So it's, it's always nice to chat with you, Pratap. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Fred. Thank you once again for inviting me. It's always fun to talk about these things and have a great uh, holiday season. Beautiful. You too. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of PharmaExec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at pharmaexec.com, on Twitter, at pharmaexec, on Instagram, at pharmaexecutive, and on YouTube, Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of PharmaExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com backslash advertise. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.